morning and welcome again to the latest in this elephant series on COVID-19 and its impact around Africa and around the world. And today it's a great honor to have my friend Dr. Godwin Murunga with us. Dr. Murunga is the seventh Executive Secretary of the Council for the Development of Social Science Research in Africa, based in Dakar, Senegal. He is also a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Nairobi, from where he's on sabbatical as he serves as the Executive Secretary of, of CODESRIA. He is uh, the, the founding uh, Deputy Director of African Leadership Center, which is a collaboration between King's College, University of London, and the University of Nairobi that is based here in Nairobi. Godwin is a historian, did his first and second degrees at the Kenyatta University and his, his PhD at uh, Northwestern University in, uh, in Illinois. Karibu Godwin. Sante sana. Thank you very much. It's, you know, we're, we're grateful to be able to catch you while you are in Nairobi. But I wanted to ask, how are you doing? I mean, how, how are things in Senegal? I know you, you're, you're currently marooned here. But I'm sure you're, you're, still, you're still working. Technology has allowed to continue work. But how are you doing? How's your family? Uh, and how is lockdown treating treating you? I know we, we are actually very fine and uh, adjusting to a new uh, environment, work environment. Incidentally, uh, John, I was uh, actually on my way to a meeting, uh, both in uh, Malawi, South Africa, and Mauritius. Uh, when I got to Nairobi and uh, found out that I could no longer head to Lilongwe because uh, the meeting had been cancelled as the pandemic was beginning to gain uh, steam on the continent. I, I am uh, here but really, really had not prepared to be here for this long. And you are right with the advantages of uh, uh, technology. Uh, we continue to, to run the affairs of Odesria, uh, even though all the staff uh, in Dakar are working from home. Uh, we are alternating, uh, those ones who are in Dakar are alternating uh, different days to come in the office so that in case there is any danger, you break the cycle of, of contagion by making sure that only a limited number of staff doing essential things uh, come to the office. But so far, I would say the activities of the council have continued, at least those ones that don't need travel uh, and those ones that don't call for big meetings are, are continuing as had been planned. Yeah. Great. Thank you. We're into, you know, the second month of lockdown, ending, you know, in, in a few days, will be, will be two, two full months where, where really people have not been moving and the physical distancing has been in place. And I, I wanted to ask, um, what, what does the pandemic uh, portend for the African Academy? Um, what, you know, what developments have you seen so far? Um, one of the things that has struck me is that mm. even for us now at uh, The Elephant, of which you're one of the founders, I forgot to mention, we've spent quite a bit of time looking for academics, looking for our experts, for our intellectuals. Um, and that's happening across the continent. All of a sudden, uh, a group which had been marginalized, uh, alienated uh, from the center, suddenly we want uh, the, our thinkers uh, back in play. And, and I just wanted to ask, you know, what, what this means, what the implications are of this. Is this, a, uh, does this present, does, does, in that sense, does Corona present an opportunity for the, for the academy, for intellectuals and thinkers like yourself to be more central to informing uh, the debates and narratives that come out and, and, and some of the solutions that we need to imagine for ourselves now? Uh, John, you, you, you will know for sure that even under normal circumstances in Africa, it is difficult to be an African academic, best in Africa primarily, but also best anywhere in the world. This is because mainstream Western knowledge producing institutions have historically never really given that much attention to knowledge producers in Africa. But also, even under normal circumstances, African governments uh, have been a lot more reluctant to engage academics in their own countries within the continent. Chronic underfunding of uh, institutions of research, limited availability of uh, basic things that you need in order to conduct research, in order to write 
in order to inform uh, communities uh, of policy. Actually, a rather deafening silence uh, from policy actors where they need to get lessons from, uh, from African academics. Uh, it used, uh, the, the late uh, Professor Tandika Mkandawire had uh, this very interesting line where he, he used to say that uh, it was easier for an expatriate to come into Africa, tell African policymakers as part of consultancy or part of, of policy advice, things that we in Africa talk about in our common rooms and in restaurants and in bars. So the point is that under normal circumstances, it's, it's been difficult for African academics. I think that uh, some of the basic challenges that affect African uh, academics will persist. I think it's going to have implications for funding. The infrastructure for research is still uh, bad and might grow us in the coming days. But of all this, I think the biggest opportunity has that African governments, African institutions of learning have been reminded that uh, they have been sitting on a, on a resource in terms of the knowledge, in terms of the skill, in terms of policy advice. They have been sitting on it without really doing enough to consult and deal with it. And I say this only because uh, all the models, well, maybe let me not take there, most of the modeling that has happened around a uh, corona pandemic be it in Europe or in the U.S., has fallen short of really providing a comparatively accurate picture of how the pandemic is panning out. Uh, it took China uh, at least a month for, for them to begin to figure out what was happening. And, and think about the amount of investments the Chinese make in research. Uh, the U.S. has uh, been a disaster of sorts uh, because they have a political establishment that distrusts research and facts. Uh, and the researchers on one hand are saying one thing, the political establishment is saying something. Uh, the federal government uh, has no unified structure of, of information that would be useful. And all while they are having all these problems in the U.S., in Europe, um, there has been a, a, general, a generalized assumption that perhaps where people need to make definite statements about the, the way the COVID uh, pandemic is, is going around is in Africa. And so while more people are dying in Europe and in the U.S., a good many commentators in Europe and U.S. are warning us about Africa. And uh, as we speak right now, much of what they have said has not really happened the way they, they said. Right. And where I'm saying there is an opportunity uh, because uh, there is a totally different logic to how Africa is working in the context of the pandemic. And uh, having watched a number of videos, that uh, recordings that uh, the elephant has done, and having watched several media on the continent, it's clear that in Africa we have and we need to encourage a different analysis. And this is the opportunity you are talking about. African academics are reflecting on the uh, on the on the local experiences of communities uh, in different countries, and being able therefore to guide both at the level of intervention but at the level of policy, uh, uh, guiding on where we really need to be thinking about. Uh, John, what would surprise you, mm -hmm. uh, maybe would surprise you, is that um, uh, this opportunity has always been there. It has always been there. Uh, when I was at the African Leadership Center, we worked with colleagues uh, to produce a book on, um, on the Ebola uh, epidemic. Okay. And actually, 14th General Assembly of Codesria uh, in 2015, there was a panel uh, on, a, on, on, a, on a Ebola epidemic, but contextualized within the broad frameworks uh, of analysis of uh, public health and uh, medicine. Uh, and a lot of this information has been lying around without being utilized. So I definitely agree with you that uh, the opportunity to make visible forms of knowledge that have been invisible uh, is perhaps the greatest opportunity we have witnessed with the emergence of, uh, uh, of the pandemic we are dealing with. I, you know, um, when we were speaking earlier, um, you, you shared a... Uh, um, a bit of an insight, which I'd like you to sort of um, perhaps um, uh, dis you know, discuss in greater detail, which is um, uh, the impact, what, what the COVID-19 pandemic has told us 
was shown us, demonstrated to us in terms of relations between uh, the state and non-state actors in the whole area of, of public health. Um, I, and I'll be grateful for your, for, for your comments on that. What lessons have been learned and what opportunities lie ahead? So, uh, really, to begin to think about the state and non-state actors in the context of the lessons of uh, the pandemic, one has to remember that uh, in, the, in the 1960s, uh, one of the biggest gain out of independence uh, of many African countries was the level at which the state was able to invest in sectors of society that colonialism had denied them. Uh, education, uh, infrastructure generally, uh, but the health sector. Uh, these are areas that had been subjected in most uh, colonies to a, a racist or a racial logic. You accessed services because of your skin color and things like that. And the African independent governments invested quite a lot in health uh, and in education in particular. Uh, if you look at the statistics, they are, they are actually staggering. Uh, and then in the late 80s into the early 90s with the onslaught of the new liberal agenda, uh, the state, essentially the logic was roll back the state, uh, liberalize and privatize. And so you have, um, especially the health sector and the education sector being hit hard uh, with many of these things, with the state divesting itself out of providing these basic services. Uh, in many cases, those of us who do political analysis have forgotten that uh, there are instances where the struggle for multi-party politics was not simply a struggle against an authoritarian state. It was also a struggle against many of the negative consequences that the state was being forced to implement in the context of structural adjustment programs. And the health sector and uh, the education sector in particular uh, were, were very uh, hard hit. Uh, the consequence of this, uh, John, has been that uh, um, uh, with, the, with the pandemic uh, just beginning, um, you have African countries, a good many of them actually, uh, that do not have a, a national framework for public health uh, provision. Um, and so what has happened is that uh, external actors uh, come in with the quote-unquote uh, funds uh, that they want to invest in the health sector. And their entry point into many of these African countries are actually the non-governmental organizations, not even civil society broadly defined. Uh, and the consequence of that is that there are many countries in Africa, I hesitate to mention some, but uh, there are many countries in Africa where the healthcare sector is not uh, uh, organized and run and uh, oversighted by the state. Uh, it's basically a whole range of external actors uh, working with non-governmental organizations in the name of providing uh, 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 public health. Now, the consequence of that is that uh, you have a totally distorted uh, system of healthcare provision in a number of countries. Yes. Uh, and those countries uh, are not, in the context of the pandemic, responding in a coordinated way. Mm -hmm. As, uh, say, for instance, uh, Ethiopia, uh, no external actor walks into Ethiopia and starts to engage in healthcare provision. Uh, without going through uh, the state, but also without abiding by their own national policies uh, around healthcare provision. Uh, yeah. Rwanda is another example uh, that, uh, that one can, can point to. And the consequence of this is that uh, you have a, 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 a European uh, countries that are today much more affected by the COVID <laughs> pandemic. Yes. And their capacity to pay attention to uh, foreign countries where they have been uh, uh, supporting um, uh, uh, specific elements of healthcare, uh, 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 they we no longer are priority. Now, any African country listening to this story, uh, that's a big red flag that uh, the only way forward for uh, provision of healthcare is uh, to have a clear national policy for healthcare provision uh, that articulates the priorities of the country based on a clear learning of the situation 
in those particular countries. Mm -hmm. A situation where you have a, a, a European countries in particular, yeah. uh, you need to, to be focusing on reproductive health yes. or focusing on uh, um, population control. Yes. Uh, country that doesn't have that problem in the first instance. Yeah. Uh, it really raises specific questions about uh, how uh, the relationship between state and non-state actors uh, has, uh, has gone on over this time. And I think that's something that uh, as researchers we need to flag uh, so that uh, it becomes clear that uh, not every Tom, Dick and Harry can walk in uh, with, a, with a fistful of, um, of dollars and then now uh, we are telling you invest in this, not the other one. Yeah. Uh, it's a really important lesson that we, the, the, this pandemic has taught us. And it has also taught us that uh, the neoliberal framework uh, of, uh, of, uh, of provision of basic social welfare needs of people uh, is actually not working. Um, in many of these countries that uh, we are talking about, um, uh, you gain social capital, you gain legitimacy as a government, by even demonstrating that you have basic infrastructure for community uh, health, for instance. Yes. Yeah. I think I think that um, uh, you know that, that's a fascinating, and, and I would like to think that um, African states will realize that um, they need to change their you know their strategic uh, approach with, with regard to public health. That they cannot actually leave this to external actors. Um, yeah. You know, otherwise, you know, we're caught um, literally with our pants down when this kind of uh, challenge arises. Uh, but Godwin, you're a historian, uh, an African historian, and, and and people have been looking for historians. I've even I've even been watching uh, talks by medievalists, you know, who uh, because you are able to contextualize. You know, uh, I was speaking to I think to Professor Mohammed Bakari, who, who who you know. Muhammad Bakari was telling you, know, let's not get overexcited, in, in a sense, in, in, not in so many words, saying that pandemics have been here. Um, they're part of the human ecosystem. These viruses are not a, um, a, you know, an unusual thing. They're, they are there. And I was, I was sharing with some colleagues my own uh, view that um, for, for quite some time, and more, now more than ever, we, we human beings have been the planet's apex predator. And, and we have grown in power and influence. There's nothing that we cannot tame. You know, we, diseases, uh, um, uh, the weather, we can clear entire forests. You know, we, we, can, we can bomb entire cities to nothing. And, uh, but uh, a virus has humbled us at this moment in the 21st century. We are trying, we are throwing our economies at it, saying, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Funga economy, we deal with this small, invisible, invisible thing that is very tiny. Yeah. What does history tell us about these kinds of moments, uh, Godwin? I mean, uh, uh, you know, this is a huge disruption, you know, the kind of disruptions caused by a pandemic, by war. Uh, what, what lessons does history teach us that, uh, that, that COVID-19 is likely going to uh, you know, the, the impact that COVID-19 is likely to have on us, especially as Africa. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, uh, one of the things that has disturbed me over the last couple of uh, weeks, uh, John, is the number of invitations I have received uh, to, to say something intelligible about, uh, about uh, COVID. I mean, I have, uh, I have numerous invitations, some of which started coming in uh, uh, last month. Um, which, which, is and, a, which is a good thing, I, I, I feel. That, uh, it, 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 is, it is a good thing that yeah. uh, in the context of a, 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 a pandemic like this one, where uh, its own nature is such that we do not know nearly enough uh, in the nature of human curiosity, to want to find answers. Yes. But exactly that is the problem. Because um, maybe the pandemic is not asking us to find answers. Maybe the pandemic is, is, is asking us, take it easy, and first of all, think through what this is all about. Okay. okay? 
Yeah. Um, and maybe it's telling us, ask more questions rather than <laughs> seeking immediate answers. And, and, and I have felt that uh, part of uh, what we have missed are the lessons of history. Okay? Um, um, more often than not, when you listen to the media, they are asking epidemiologists historical questions. Okay? Yes. Uh, and uh, we have been quick to do uh, a whole number of things to prevent uh, further spread of the pandemic. Uh, isolate people, put them in a, a quarantine, and uh, just, you know, uh, all these are, are tried and tested methods. Yeah. The pandemic in COVID-19, in my estimation, yeah. is, te- is just reminding us, you know, let- uh, and what is the basics. Um, there is no... Uh, I mean, before COVID-19, the Americans would have told you that uh, their budget uh, for military um, is, 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 I mean, there is no no country in the world that has a budget for the military comparable to, to the Americans. No. The pandemic is saying that budget is useless. That's, that's true. I mean, essentially that's the message uh, that a country like uh, South Korea and uh, Singapore to, to an extent uh, are able to find uh, workable ways of managing the spread of the pandemic. It's not because they have a good uh, budget. It's because they first of all looked at the historical lessons. Having just dealt with the, I think it's SARS uh, the other day, uh, South Korea has been able to put in place uh, mechanisms. Um, but it has also raised the question um, that there comes a time in history when, um, when a, a medical, when a public cannot be sorted out through, cannot be treated as a clinical problem. Um, So you can have the best infrastructure for providing hospitals and all that. This pandemic is saying that the site for the fight against uh, the the, the virus is not in the hospital. Uh, The hospital can only be, I mean, we were discussing the example of Ecuador, uh, where uh, people have died in, in such a huge numbers that the hospitals cannot handle it. Uh, we saw the experience of Italy, which has a system of medical provision that perhaps is, is, is better than many countries. We saw the medical system collapse. So the historical question, uh, if you go say to Italy, is, uh, is this one. How would a country like Cuba be able to design a system of intervention Yes. Uh, after having suffered years, if you will, uh, of isolation from the mainstream uh, world, yes. how would a country like Cuba be the one sending us out there? And I think that uh, the one thing that the Cubans got that most of us haven't really gotten is that um, uh, provision of medical service, provision of public uh, healthcare systems is less about what you do in hospitals. It's more about what you do in communities. Mm-hmm. I think that is the big historical lesson. The big historical lesson is that all previous epidemics, all previous pandemics have been resolved not by investing, well, by investing in medical provision, but also by investing in communities. Because that's where the solution lies. In much of Africa, uh, and uh, one would want to go say back to the, how we began to manage HIV AIDS, uh, South Africa, Uganda, who are the primary caregivers yeah. uh, in, those, in those contexts? In contexts where the national budget for, 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 for help is uh, very limited, in contexts where the most advanced hospitals are private hospitals. Uh, I mean, I don't want to tell you about the privatization uh, of medical services here in Nairobi, uh, where it, in the last couple of years it has been cheaper to send 
uh, our sick to India than to put them in hospitals here in Nairobi. Correct. Uh, when you think about that, the historical lesson is that the primary, just making the point about uh, primary caregivers. But you, you, you are making, yeah, you are making that connection, that, that, that point, that this is not a, a clinical, a pandemic is not necessarily a clinical issue. And the, and the Cuban example demonstrates that very well. That also about how the entire sort of community uh, is engaged in issues of public wealth and how, you know, how essentially how societies organize around issues of health and how they prioritize that. Because, it, you know, you make a very good point. Cuba, which was under sanctions from the U.S. for so long, has, has suffered many you know, privations and, and, and over the past several decades, is exporting doctors in the middle of yes. a pandemic to, to Europe yes. uh, and yes. Africa. While we are, we are watching, some of the Western countries uh, have had tremendous difficulty in, in, in managing this. And um, so, you know, you are, you are making the point that, you know, their, their model is different. It's, 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 yeah, the, their, their model is different because uh, it has prioritized investment in communities. It has prioritized investment in the knowledge that communities have about their own health. Uh, because this assumption that we carry in much of the rest of the world, uh, that we know what the healthcare needs of people are. And so we come from the capital cities and we bring you the knowledge, we bring you the facilities, we bring you the equipment and all this. It's based on a, a certain level of uh, intellectual, uh, I, I don't know how to call it, but, but it's almost like it ignores local knowledge. And what many of the more successful countries have done is that they have believed that communities are better off if they lead the idea of what really they need. And so prioritizing them really is the point I'm saying. And I want to very quickly connect this point to issues of social policy, uh, if you think. Uh, because I think that uh, each time governments are laying out frameworks for, 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 for social uh, welfare, the welfare of the people, uh, um, where you prioritize the needs, the healthcare needs of people uh, through uh, institutions uh, that come from the urban into the rural, you actually miss out a huge percentage of the what really matters to people. Uh, so, uh, should the national government, the ministries in in, uh, in capital cities, be the ones telling people to wash their hands? I mean, what kind of uh, uh, logic is this? Shouldn't they be dealing with more complicated, more sophisticated things? And I think for me, COVID has uh, essentially reminded us uh, that if you trust communities uh, to, to know and do what they to know, do, and do it best as they can understand having experienced all these things, they are much better off in doing these basic things. Uh, but that we are now using high-level panels, we are now using high-level uh, institutions to do what otherwise are basic uh, healthcare uh, messaging. Uh, it's an indictment of the kind of healthcare system we've been nurturing all over all this time. And I think it's time that uh, we went back to reality and understood what we are doing as a, as, as, as a country, as a continent. I, I, you know, um, that feels like an intellectual gauntlet that has been thrown, and it's and and, it, and I think it's 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 a worthy one because um, uh, you know it's become now a bit of a tired phrase, the new normal, etc. You know, um, but uh, actually, this this is a profound lesson um, that we've been forced to throw our uh, our economies at this crisis. Um, and to lock down very aggressively, which has helped um, manage things in the first phase, which is, you know, I think Africa has actually done pretty well because between middle of April and middle of May, we, was, we were expecting this catastrophe to, to happen, but um, uh, uh, we were able to stop it through um, fairly draconian measures, which perhaps would not have been... But I want... Go ahead. John, I want to be a little bit cheeky and uh, make the point. Yes. Uh, uh, is this the first time that Africans and African governments are actually being able to decide 
on a major decision almost independently, uninterrupted by others who have always taken the right to tell us what to do. Correct. Uh, isn't really the very, very first moment. Uh, our, and uh, a good, some of our presidents are not the most pleasant people. Let us uh, not run away from this uh, particular <laughs> but, but the point is that for the first time in view of the pandemic, once the rest of the world moved on and started sorting out its own problems, we as Africans who are left alone to begin to think about how to sort out our own problems. Correct. And yes, Nakata and uh, in some instances, but also let us not run away from the fact that in the process of all these things, African governments, African peoples have been taking decisions, right? And maybe, maybe, maybe the lesson is this, that we need a lot more of us taking our own decisions, running away with it. Uh, the pandemic has given us an opportunity to see how we can go. So I can stand before you today and tell you that Senegal has tried. Uh, you can have all the problems you want, but uh, all the news coming out of Senegal uh, is that um, they have been able to manage that pandemic. Now, people do not really understand what it means uh, in a context of a country that is uh, predominantly Muslim. Uh, it has been able to manage its internal religious challenges. It has been able to get the population to accept to go through these measures without any major incident. They have been able to show that they can, they can manufacture, they can create kits, kits. a testing kit, Correct. That, um, uh, affordable. Yeah. Uh, they have been able to send people home uh, to go uh, and, 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 and be attended to. So we can focus on the draconian, if you will, but at the heart of this are very interesting lessons uh, for the future. And let me also make a second point. I'm not too quick to dismiss Madagascar. Okay. I'm not too quick. Don't know the scientific content of uh, what they have discovered, uh, and I'm not saying that I'm endorsing anything. But I'm just saying, having lived in this continent, having seen how uh, basic uh, uh, the, the initiatives get dismissed because they are African, I'm going to be the last to dismiss until I see the facts on the table. Uh, and the point that we are saying, the point we are saying is that really given a sense of autonomy to do our own thing in the context of the pandemic, acknowledging that it started in many other places and only reached us late in the day, uh, the Africa that has consistently been dismissed as being capable of even picking up one lesson and doing its own thing, is beginning to show that the modeling, the curve, uh, that uh, had been projected uh, isn't working. Uh, uh, the UNECA had projected, uh, according to the uh, uh, document I saw, had projected that uh, between 300,000 and 3.3 million people would die in Africa. Africa. Uh, that, to be honest with you, is uh, the worst kind of prediction that anyone can want to use to make policy decisions around thing with, uh, with this. So my point is that we have an opportunity as Africans to show, and I hope that going forward we'll be able to demonstrate that we are capable of learning and doing our things. And as everybody is focusing on their own countries, uh, you, the Europeans are focusing on their own situation, the Americans are focusing on their own situation, maybe the opportunity is that we can also do our thing. And the research community, I must conclude, is available uh, to speak to some of these things. Thanks, Godwin. Um, this related question. Um, the, the last General Assembly of, of Cordesria, uh, the theme was globalization and its impact on Africa. That's a lot. Um, what, what has COVID-19, you know, the disruption to globalization? First of all, there's a sense in which uh, this pandemic has been accelerated by globalization and, and the, the, the economic impact uh, has, has been uh, accelerated uh, profoundly because supply chains have been disrupted you know, in terms of our ability to trade. We now cannot fly around the world the way we used to. Um, and what are some of the lessons, you know, some of the immediate sort of, sort of uh, ideas that have 
come to mind uh, going from the fact that uh, you were discussing globalization at Cordestria uh, last year and uh, and here we have this virus has come as a, as a major disruptor uh, yes to the market. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, indeed, uh, you are right that uh, the theme of the last General Assembly of Codestria uh, held in December 2018 was uh, uh, Africa and the crisis of globalization. Uh, and I recall that uh, when we were discussing uh, the choice of theme uh, in Pretoria in uh, December 2017, uh, the Executive Committee of Codestria had this long session where we were unsure how to frame uh, the topic. Uh, uh, there was uh, a proposal, Africa and the challenges of globalization. Uh, there was even an argument, I can't remember how it was framed, but uh, somebody made the point that maybe we need a more neutral topic uh, because the proposed topic of Africa and the crisis of globalization uh, was not neutral enough as to allow for us to investigate the, side, the many-sidedness of the issue uh, of uh, globalization. Uh, and at the end of the day, we took a deliberate decision to, 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 to really do the General Assembly on Africa and the crisis of globalization. And guess what? Uh, doesn't the pandemic suggest that there is a, a real serious crisis of globalization? All right. All right. Think about it, uh, while uh, here in Kenya, for instance, uh, people uh, were complaining about uh, the virus coming in from China, uh, they forgot uh, that there are other alternative paths through which uh, the virus would get into this country, right? We had this anti-Chinese sentiment, uh, the landing of the China Southern uh, flight caused quite a bit of uh, problems. Uh, we did not remember uh, that uh, once the virus took flight uh, from China and uh, got into Europe, uh, that um, uh, given our connection to Europe, because of globalization, because of the instance of colonialism, uh, that uh, we were more exposed uh, comparatively, uh, we were more exposed uh, with the danger of COVID-19 coming from Europe than coming from uh, China. Uh, from, uh, and that speaks to the complexity uh, that uh, globalization presents in the context of the, of the, of the virus. Uh, New York, um, New York, um, uh, the virus in New York is a specifically European import. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I know of people uh, who traveled from the U.S. to the U.K. to Nairobi, okay, uh, uh, and the virus was not tracked at all until you got into Nairobi. Um, uh, so the point I'm making is this. Um, um, you know, as a historian, I once wrote a chapter uh, titled Inherently Unhygienic Races. Uh, <laughs> Of the of the of the of, of, of my paper, which I published a while ago, uh, and I found that phrase in the colonial archive in uh, one oh. of the, the medical officers of health. Yeah. Uh, basically, made the argument that uh, we needed to segregate people in Nairobi because there are some races that are inherently unhygienic. <laughs> and uh, when I I started tracking the data, and I'm really talking about uh, Nairobi between uh, 18. Uh, uh, 1892 to 1907. Yeah. Uh, studying the data, uh, I found that uh, the vectors around which bubonic plague spread in uh, early colonial Nairobi had very little to do with inherently unhygienic races. It had everything to do with anything else, the structure of Nairobi and the way it was being managed and all that, and nothing to do with inherently unhygienic races. I'm using that example to remind everyone uh, that the challenges of globalization are such that the basic assumptions we have about different people, the basic assumptions we have about movements of people and goods uh, do not always hold. Uh, globalization represents 
uh, what somebody called uh, time space compression. Yes. Right? It has opportunities in it, it has dilemmas in it, it has dangers in it. But at the end of the day, in the context of the current uh, COVID uh, pandemic, uh, essentially, uh, globalization has turned out some of the key things we identify as important for facilitating globalization have become our biggest problem. Uh, so the vector has, uh, the virus has spread more through, uh, initially through, um, through the flights uh, than anything else. I mean, we can talk about community spread and all that, but initially, uh, this has spread through. Uh, so forcing us to ground almost all the aeroplanes that one can think about that move people. Uh, now there are a few that are moving goods, but we've grounded all of them. Airlines are going to have to declare bankruptcy. Okay, uh, um, this whole idea of uh, of uh, of uh, this whole nativist idea that has taken hold in Europe and in the US will very soon become a, 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 self a self fulfilling prophecy, where you wanted to kick away the immigrants, well they can't come anymore, right? Uh, and uh, the consequence of that is that uh, there is a huge smack in the face of proponents of globalization, seen in terms of technology, seen in terms of uh, closer proximity of people and all that. I think this is the big crisis that we are going to have to deal with. And worst of all, especially if it begins to dismiss the state as an important player mm. in many of the things that we, we do as human beings. If, if um, um, you are asked to um, uh, imagine um, states learning the lessons that they should from this pandemic uh, as a final question. Um, what measures, what policies would they be looking to implement, you know, uh, to be able to deal with this kind of eventuality in the future? Because, um, you know, the fastest ever vaccine produced um, was for the mumps. And that took four years. This one they're saying maybe in 18 months we might have something. They might have some, some, some treatments in, in, in before that. Um, but from all you've said, uh, Godwin, is, is, is that you know, um, you know, this is not a clinical problem, first and foremost. Uh, number two, it causes questions in terms of the relationship between state and non-state actors in public health and the role of community. So these are pretty big um, chunks of, 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 you know, of the kind of strategies that states have to deploy in terms of, their, you know, in terms of delivering services to their people. Um, and so, you know, perhaps we can we close with, with what would you hope would be some of the most important lessons and changes that would emerge out of, out of this experience? Uh, number one, for the academy, number two, for the way we manage public health, and also in terms of leadership, uh, Godwin. What, what, you know, I mean, uh, uh, our, we, we've seen some, I think some pretty impressive um, leadership from the front out of South Africa, you know, President mm -hmm. Ramaphosa seems to be in political um, sort of uh, uncertainties until COVID arrived mm -hmm. and he has really risen to the challenge. We've seen probably President mm -hmm. Museveni who, uh, of Uganda, who um, before that was you know, really portrayed as this uh, old, tired dictator. Um, but again, with regard to COVID, his response has been impressive. Uh, same thing with, with, with Ghana and, and uh, Senegal. Um, the stories are beginning to emerge. Uh, Africans are manufacturing their own masks, uh, their own PPEs, They're even people who are building ventilators. So um, uh, what would be some of the lessons that you say, okay, that if we don't learn, we shall, be, we shall pay a high price for uh, if, 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 if we are looking back? Uh, yeah, John. Uh, one of the so one of the key one of the key lessons that I think uh, is sitting right before our eyes mm. is not isolate uh, matters public health mm. and.
treat them as if they are a separate thing, disconnected from everything else. Uh, I think that's the biggest lesson. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to the, I think it's the Minister uh, of Health uh, of Singapore. Yes. Um, and he said, uh, the success of any intervention is going to depend uh, on three things. Uh, it's going to depend on the quality of uh, uh, the public health system, the public, the quality of healthcare. Mm. Uh, so you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, the hospitals, the capacity of medical uh, staff to intervene at the level of, uh, uh, you know, their training. Uh, all that system is, is like very important. So we don't want to be dismissive of it. But he also said uh, it's going to depend on the nature of the governance system, uh, the capacity of a state uh, to mobilize itself mm -hmm. to intervene uh, in this uh, uh, um, pandemic. And the third one, which <laughs> I don't think we pay too much attention to, he called it social capital. Yes. The capacity of a state to take action, yes. but to have people buying into it and therefore the state being able to use social capital that it has uh, amassed over a period of time. In other words, people don't simply uh, reject the interventions of the state, draconian as some may be, because they are draconian. They, they reject because they, there is no proven capacity of the leadership to demonstrate achievement before you know the pandemic uh, hit, and there's a, a young uh, a student from um, uh, from Uganda uh, whom we trained at uh, at the African Leadership Center who wrote a nice uh, brief note and said, "Success with the pandemic is not going to be dependent exclusively on what we do after the pandemic." Correct going to depend on what we did before the pandemic. <laughs> That's very well put. This is really correct because um, I think if there is any big lesson to be picked out of this, it's precisely that, that uh, the, the infrastructure we put in place uh, uh, is, is, is absolutely important. So uh, I would like us to move away from um, from um, the days when we thought uh, diseases are handled in, uh, in hospitals and clinics, uh, to days when we, 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 we understood that what you do in communities is important. And this, John, I should say, uh, links up very quickly with the question of uh, funding. Yes. Um, any governments that are going to continue investing more in defense, for instance, and less in public health. Uh, the lesson is there for you to see that uh, you can have the best military, you can uh, invest in uh, all the equipment, but we haven't found that one equipment that can shoot the virus. No. Okay. No. We now are talking about, uh, mums, it was four years. Uh, we are now talking about uh, 19 months or something for coronavirus. Uh, I hope they get it, but really, is that our best to handle this question? Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, so, I think <laughs> budget-wise, we are being invited to rethink our budgets and yes. budget-making processes. Yes. Uh, begin to remember that uh, this little thing called a virus, which, by the way, some uh, some Kenyans were making fun about that uh, we have just discovered you don't need a hand sanitizer. You yeah. just need the bath. You just need <laughs> the bath. Virus. <laughs> you, you just but need what? How? Yes. Yes, John. Sorry, no, I didn't hear you. You said you don't need the sanitizer. You just need a? A bath soap. The one that we use for washing hands and washing clothes. Okay? <laughs> Actually, the cheaper version of it is more effective in fighting this. And it takes about 
15, 20, 20 seconds of washing your hands consistently, and uh, you are comparatively safer than all these amounts of money that we are putting into it now. So the big budgetary question, I think, has come back uh, to the table. Uh, and uh, of course, I had already mentioned that investing in the real caregivers uh, is going to be important. This should be organized uh, by the state rather than by non-state actors. I'm not saying that we do not need non-state actors, but I think a coherent framework uh, is perhaps uh, more important. I think the, the third point that uh, has emerged with specific reference to Africa uh, is that uh, we need to reconnect uh, to our uh, uh, academic communities uh, in ways perhaps that we have underappreciated uh, previously. Um, a lot of the good information that helped fight uh, Ebola uh, in DRC, in the Mano River Basin, uh, was local knowledge. Uh, again, people don't remember this very much. Uh, we first began to deal with Ebola by parachuting in, uh, uh, you know, medical doctors from abroad, only to realize that how you deal with the dead uh, was more consequential to dealing with Ebola than how much medicine you administer, okay? Uh, we haven't said enough about uh, doctors in, uh, in the Congo, okay, who have pioneered uh, approaches to dealing with this disease. So reconnecting with our own communities. But also in the context of that discussion, a bigger lesson uh, which I, I hope comes out even from the series of interviews you are conducting for the elephant is that it's one thing to, to make an argument that you want to invest in science, biological science, physical, and all that. But the situation becomes totally uh, when you begin to appreciate uh, the fact uh, that uh, a lot of the challenges we face around public health are social. So those governments that are waking up to say we need to stop funding history, teaching history and all this, and we spend money in uh, chemistry and all this, uh, you cannot control a pandemic outside the laboratory. Uh, <laughs> that's just a simple right. as, uh, as it should be. Correct. Uh, I've seen uh, many leaders make that mistake, and I think the lessons are now uh, at home. So I hope those uh, are a useful guide. Uh, Dr. Gordon Urunga, Asante, Asante Sana uh, for those very profound insights that uh, give us a lot of food for thought. I'm sure that we'll be coming back to you because this is something that is developing fairly quickly. And um, I didn't have a chance to... to to interrogate you a bit further about, uh, you know, just the leadership um, across Africa and the implications for for how um, leaders now need to um, act and behave uh, in, in in a post uh, in in a, in, a, in in a reality. You know, also interviewing uh, um, Professor Larry Diamond of, of, of Stanford, and, and he made an interesting point. He said, "Well, we've been talking of China as a as a, as a rising power." And now we have to accept it has risen. Uh, mm -hmm. That 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 you know <laughs> the idea of China as a coming superpower is, is finished. China is a superpower now. That's a reality that we are going to have to deal with and manage. Yeah. No, thank you very much, uh, John. I appreciate the occasion to discuss this, and uh, wish you all the very best. You too. Thanks a lot, Dr. Godwin.